Hi, I'm Emily Abbott. Welcome to The Brain Possible, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts that you can give your children is the gift of hope and possibility. Hope to fulfill their dreams or to achieve all that they want in this life. Hope to walk independently. Hope to speak. Hope to have a conversation with you and to be able to tell you what they're thinking out loud. As for possibility, imagine that anything is possible if only you have the faith to believe it. Your journey to become more empowered, informed, connected, and free from limitations starts now. We're so happy that you're taking this journey with us. Sally Fallon Morell is the founding president of the Weston A. Price Foundation, WestonAPrice.org. That's W-E-S-T-O-N-A-P-R-I-C-E dot O-R-G. Weston A. Price is a nonprofit nutrition education foundation dedicated to returning nutrient-dense food to American tables. She's also the founder of a campaign for real milk. That can be found at realmilk.com, which has it as its goal, universal access to clean raw milk from pasture-fed animals. She's the author of the best-selling cookbook, Nourishing Traditions, with Mary G. Ng, PhD, the Nourishing Traditions book of baby and child care, with Thomas S. Cowan, MD, Nourishing Broth, with Kayla T. Daniel, PhD, CCN, Nourishing Fats and Nourishing Diets. She and her husband, Joffrey, are owners of a P.A. Bowen farmstead in Southern Maryland. You can find that at P-A-B-O-W-E-N-F-A-R-M-S-T-E-A-D.com. They produce raw cheese and milk from pastured cows, woodlands, whey-fed pork, and grass-fed poultry and eggs. You can visit her blog at nourishingtraditions.com. I wanted to bring Sally on today because I've been introducing this philosophy or, or discussion around food as medicine. And I think that no matter whether your child is healing or you have a typical neuroatypical developing children, that food is the cornerstone of where our health is at. And even if all we can do at this moment is tube feed or bottle feed, it's still so important what is going in to that tube. And I'm not a tube feeding expert, but I did want to lean on Sally because she's kind of the queen of food as medicine and um, empowering families and parents to to embrace traditional foods and traditional diets of our ancestors and to get to know your local farmer. So I'm super excited. I've been cooking from Sally's books. They have moved with me a million times. They're food stained and they're the ones that I will pull off the shelf again and again and again. Not only are they full of fantastic nutrient dense recipes, you can get books the main book, Nourishing Traditions, which has all your basics, but I also love the one for baby and child care. 
I reach for that one a lot when my little ones were, even when I was pregnant, it has so much information, not just recipes. It talks about all the things you need to know about, you know, in your environment and and bringing up your babies and your kids well and uh, healthy. You can find Sally's new book with Dr. Thomas Cowan, The Cognition Myth, Why Viruses, Including the Coronavirus, are not the cause of disease at all places where books are sold, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Sally's website. I just started reading it. It is fascinating and it certainly pushes me to think about, question the things that we hear and believe. It's it's good for all of us, I think, to at least question and to try on different viewpoints every day, to never just fall into a, a habit of following and assuming other people know what they're doing. So as you can tell, I'm a huge fan. I really hope that you enjoy listening to Sally and and trying on her viewpoint for what it means to be well and to nourish our bodies. Welcome, Sally. Welcome to the Brain Possible podcast. We talk a lot about food as medicine here on the podcast and in our, our new digital community in our nonprofit organization, in the realm of healing children, parents who are working actively with their kiddos with neurological conditions and seeking wellness. So why is food the best medicine? Well, without food, we can't do anything, of course. And our bodies were designed to require certain nutrients, certain levels of nutrients that we're definitely, most children are not getting in their diets today. I always say that the food is about 80% of it. Then the other 20% is the tweaking. It might be homeopathy. It might be some kind of therapy. But without the food, you're just kind of wasting your time and money because, and especially the brain, uh, we kind of think of the brain as something kind of nebulous, I think. But the brain is an organ and it needs to be nourished like every other organ in the body like your bones and everything. And the brain needs special nourishment uh, more. It actually requires more nutrient-dense foods than other parts of the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are your top healing foods specific to brain health? um, Or what would you recommend to to parents who are actively um, trying to support their children in, in healing from neurological conditions? Well, the first food I'd recommend is egg yolks. Uh, and I, I say that because, first of all, it's extremely nutrient-dense food, and it tends to be not allergenic. The whites are the allergenic part. And egg yolks are the highest cholesterol food, and that brain needs cholesterol. Now, an orthodox person would say, well, you just make all the cholesterol you need, but that's not true for children. Children cannot make cholesterol, Uh, certainly babies can't, and that ability to make cholesterol only comes on as you grow. And if you eat high cholesterol foods, your body doesn't have to make so much cholesterol. We always recommend egg yolks as the first food for babies, simply because babies just cannot make cholesterol and it is the most important nutrient for the brain. So how, how do you eat egg yolks? And I know a lot of these kids are really picky. And I have one grandson who's extremely picky and another one who's kind of moderately picky. 
Now, a baby who's not picky, you can just make a, a fried egg, but keep the yolk kind of soft and just feed them the yolk from the fried egg. It's very, very easy. With some salt, babies really do need salt. And so many baby books say not to withhold salt from babies. That's, that's kind of genocide, really. Anyway, um, for the really picky child, uh, our go-to food was custards. And you can make custard with egg yolks, cream, a natural sweetener, and some mm -hmm. vanilla. And they're delicious. And children mm -hmm. love them. You can also add other things to the custard, like uh, sweet potatoes. My daughter said she has made so many sweet potato custards for her semi-picky child uh, to make sure that they got their egg yolks. And growing children should have one egg yolk a day, at least. Now, maybe they'll eat uh, scrambled eggs, and then we put extra yolks in the scrambled eggs. Yeah, I've made a lot of your custards as well, particularly the sweet potato one for my kids. That was like their first dessert. <laughs> yeah, but the little do they know that it's our way of getting egg yolks into them. No, they thought it was cake. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I um, usually just whisk the egg as it's cooking so that it never, never solidifies. Yeah, yeah. And egg yolks are full of iron, uh, B12, which is critical for the neurological system, vitamin B6, all the minerals, and they're very high in fat. And one of the things we need for a working brain is stable blood sugar. You know, when your blood sugar drops, you can't think very clearly. And the fats are what keep our blood sugar stable. I once had a woman come up to me after a talk and she said, I had a stuttering problem all my life. You know, a lot of these children have speech impediments. And she said, when I learned to eat a high fat diet, my stuttering completely went away. So it's just, it's just having enough sugar in the brain uh, and the, the high-fat diet keeps the blood sugar stable. Right. Speaking about eggs, I know there's so many other uh, nutritious foods and, and food groups for you to talk about, but eggs is one that's kind of a high-allergy food. Well, the whites can be very allergenic, but not the yolks, typically. It's very rare for the yolks to be allergenic. I'm allergic to both. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it's too bad. <laughs> I know it is. It is really horrible. And hopefully it can heal because, well, I'm sensitive to both. I show up as high sensitivity. My body doesn't like them. But I know a lot of kids in our community might be like me or maybe even worse and turn up as allergic to a lot of things. Um, could be some gut, something going on in the gut. And you also know a lot about that, too. So I suppose... <laughs> well, let me just go back and finish the foods because we, we talked about egg yolks, salt, liver. And I know people are very squeamish about liver, but, you know, we recommend pureed liver as baby's first food. Babies love it. They, they're too young to be picky. You know, they just eat it because you put salt and butter in it and it's delicious. But liver is the quintessential nutrient-dense food. And like egg yolks, it contains... So many important vitamins and minerals. So if, if they won't eat pate, now listen, my grandchildren will eat liverwurst and um, they love pate. We just tell them it's sausage and, and they'll eat it, see? If one way or another, you have to get the liver in them. It could be very finely diced in a soup. You can hide it. I I've, I've thought of lots of ways to hide it. I hid it in spaghetti sauce and things like that. And then the last uh, really important food is raw milk which has a lot of brain-building components and very supportive of the immune system, good healthy bones, 
Yeah, a lot of people are also nervous about raw milk. Well, the milk you should be nervous about is pasteurized milk. Right. Can you explain? It causes more illness. It's highly allergenic. We've really been fooled about milk. And it's all based on the germ theory, which is, uh, as I show in my recent book, is completely wrong. Let me just put a plug in for the book. It's called The Contagion Myth, and it's just coming out next week. Yeah, I know. I'm excited. I've watched a few of your interviews discussing it. So for people who aren't aware of the difference exactly between pasteurized milk and raw milk and why raw milk is better, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, first, what is raw milk? It is the food, raw whole milk with all the fat. It is the food in nature for the nourishment and growth of all mammals, and that includes human beings. So, and that's raw. It's raw milk. The milk proteins and all the components of milk are quite amazing, and the, but they're very fragile. We like to say on our farm, even just hitting the sides of a pipe will start the breakdown of raw milk, certainly the breakdown of the flavor components. So. When you heat it, that's like hitting it with a hammer, hitting somebody with a hammer. The proteins get warped and distorted. They become highly allergenic. The body doesn't know what they are. And then all the proteins in milk that are there to facilitate the absorption of nutrients, they're all gone. The Mm -hmm. glutathione, which supports the immune system, that cannot be used by the body after pasteurization. And, you know, most milk today is ultra-pasteurized which means it's heated above 230 degrees. That's above the boiling point and a very rapid, it's, it's rushed past the stainless steel plate. It's a very violent process to nature's most perfectly balanced and delicate food. I mean, it's bound to ruin it. Now, if you can't get raw milk, I would not give milk to the child. Hopefully the child will eat cheese or something, but what's selling in the grocery stores is worse than garbage. It's a poison to the children. Hmm. I see a lot of raw cheese in, in the grocery store. It's more common to find that in grocery stores. Well, you have to be careful in the United States because raw cheese technically is cheese under 110 degrees. It hasn't been heated past 110 degrees. And most cheese that they say raw is actually what they call thermized in Europe. And it can be heated to 150 degrees. That destroys all the enzymes. So you use our shopping guide. I have it right here. Weston A. Price shopping guide. Yeah, we can link to that. And you'll find the really raw cheeses. And you can find it local farmers. Yes, yes. Just ask, how, how high do you heat your milk? And 110 should be the absolute maximum. And in this time of the, the coronavirus fear that's going on, some people might be nervous about raw foods and raw milks. I think people a lot of time might be nervous about bacteria we want to talk about it and share that it's not something to be scared of. Right. So we have seen a complete paradigm shift as far as bacteria is concerned. My co-author, Tom Cowan, when he was in medical school, there was no such thing as good bacteria. All bacteria was bad. And when a patient was sick, you basically tried to sterilize them with antibiotics, kill all the bacteria in their body. We now know that that's very foolish, that the bacteria, we can't live without good bacteria. We need to foster that good bacteria. That's one thing raw milk does and fermented foods. And um, these children with a lot of learning and behavior concerns definitely need probiotic foods, foods that put the good bacteria in the gut. And raw milk is one of those foods. And the whole notion of pasteurizing milk to make it safe 
is based on a completely discredited theory now that bacteria are bad. So the theory is discredited, but we still have this terrible system of pasteurizing. Yeah, yeah. If someone cannot, if their child can't tolerate milk, and it's really unfortunate, but my little guy who had a traumatic brain injury, he could not. At first, I was feeding him just out of your book. And um, I was doing, Lindy taught me, you know, she's the one who was like, buy this book and here's how you make bone broth. And this is what you should feed him. I learned later that he couldn't take the casein. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Casein. And when I, and I was so reluctant to remove it. And I was like, no, he eats the best food. (laughs) And then when I did though, he all of a sudden was able to start going to the bathroom, which wasn't something he was able to do. And it's, it's something that I've heard. I mean, it seems to be common a little bit. These, these really chronic allergies tend to be a little more common in our community. So in that case, um, do you recommend goat milk? I would always try it. It tends to be less allergenic than cow's milk, but more constipating. Mm. So it's a trade-off. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it should be raw goat milk, of course. What about cheese? Can your little one do cheese? All of my kids do, um, except one. I can't eat cheese. I just realized I can eat goat cheese. I'm kind of hoping eventually my gut can be healed enough that I can reintroduce things, but I've been working on it for years myself. Well, you know, if you can't do milk or cheese, then you, there is a concern about calcium. You know, I think it's a tendency to, oh, we don't need all that calcium. You know, we don't need the dairy products. But in cultures that didn't have dairy products, they made a big effort to get the calcium, usually through bones. They would take small animals and grind up the bones and put in the food. And, and bone broth won't do that. I mean, there's not much calcium in bone broth, so it really has to be the bones. And, and the calcium is also very important for the brain function too. So somehow you're going to have to get the calcium in there. And a lot of people make a chicken broth. And then when the bones are really soft, they just crush them up and just add a little bit to a soup or stew or something like that. Does it change the flavor of the, the broth if you're adding in grinded up bones? It t- changes the texture. It's not going to be a nice smooth broth, but if you have a cream soup or something like that, it should be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are there any other options? Like, what do you say, uh, shells? Well, you know, vegetables are not an option because there's a lot of blockers in the vegetables. Even, and of course, most vegetables should be cooked. But even so, they're, they're, you really like, I, mean, I think you have to eat about six cups of spinach, cooked spinach. <laughs> To get what's in the calcium in one glass of milk, nobody can eat six cups of cooked spinach. I'm sorry. It's just, it wouldn't be good for you for other reasons. Some people have cooked eggshells and a little bit of water plus vinegar, but not very appetizing. <laughs> no, no. Okay, so we've got um, for, for the kids and their brain health, definitely egg yolks, if you can do that. And liver. And liver. And what I used to do, I think, I don't know if this was recommended in your one of your books that I cooked out of the most is the, the baby and child one. And um, I don't know if it recommended in there or Lindy told me, but I would freeze some liver and then just grate it in there. Yeah. And you can grate it in their food or, well, if they're just infants, if you're just weaning them, the pureed liver, I mean, my grandsons all just loved it. They kicked their heels with glee when they were eating their liver. So um, it shouldn't be hard to make a baby eat liver. But then as they grow older, then you have to get kind of creative. Mm -hmm. Unless they develop the taste early. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes that helps. And then bone broth. 
Yes, and that's very linked to the gut. You know, Natasha Campbell McBride recommends the the meat stock, she calls it, which is not a lot of gelatin in it, but just meat cooked about four hours. Because some of these kids have such a reactive digestion that the bone broth, they can't do the bone broth. A lot of glycine and glutamate in the bone broth, which are essential essential amino acids. We have to have them in the food, but we can't do a lot. So So that would be cooking like a whole chicken and making your broth from that rather than the carcass. Yes. Like cooking a whole chicken, cook a whole chicken in water for two or three hours. That should be fine for your meat stock. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, Natasha wrote the book about uh, the GAPS diet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very popular treatment among our community as well. Gut and psychology syndrome. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's been very successful. And it's not meant to be a permanent diet. Uh, usually it's a healing diet, and then you can gradually introduce other foods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And heal some of these, the inflammation and some of these um, intolerances. Well, you heal the gut wall is what it helps you do so that the gut is not so reactive and not so porous. Mm-hmm. So... Let's go back. Are you ready to go back to allergies or do you have any other food? Sure, sure. Go ahead. We didn't talk about sauerkraut, though. I suppose that's a staple. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about allergies, you mentioned that sauerkraut. I didn't learn this until recently listening to one of your interviews. It's higher. What is it? 10 times higher in vitamin C than than a cabbage. Wow. This is very important right now. If someone challenged me on that, where did you get that number 10 times? I think I know. I think I know where that came from, but I'd have to go back and check, but um, it's certainly many fold higher mm-hmm. when you make the sauerkraut. I didn't know that. And there's as much probiotic activity in a spoonful of real sauerkraut than there is in a whole bottle of pills, probiotic pills. Wow. So, and that, those bacteria do survive the gut. I'm not sure how, but they do. And they get right through the gut, you know, stomach acid and they get to the, the intestinal tract. I often wonder about when people cook sauerkraut or eat it warm. Yeah, you don't want to cook it. <laughs> yeah, like it's kind of, um, you know, I think uh, some German meals and then sometimes putting it in your soup, but then it adds that flavor. But aren't you then getting rid of all the bacteria? Yeah, yeah. But yet it survives in our our stomach. The stomach is only about 100 degrees. <laughs> your soup is a little bit hotter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so Lindy's recommendation was always put the sauerkraut out as a condiment and on the table every day with every meal. And and if it's there, the kids just take it. They they will start to like that taste and crave it even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Very good idea. Uh-huh. So Lindy and I have been wondering about the relatively new American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines on introducing allergy producing foods to infants. Have you heard about the new change in in the guidelines? Well, I think they're now saying that you should introduce these allergic foods early. I don't understand the, you know, the rationale for that. I think it's much more important to feed them really nutrient-dense foods, get that gut, you know, nice and firm. I mean, I worked with Mary Ennig, uh, you know, for years, and she was very emphatic, no egg whites until they're at least a year because otherwise they'll tend to develop allergies. Well, I was one of those people. My mother fed me the whole egg starting at about four months. I had an egg a day. I'm so glad she did because I got those egg yolks, but I had allergies, a lot of eczema and rashes and things. 
And even today, I have to be careful about the whites. And certainly no raw egg whites. You know, people putting whole eggs in a smoothie. You know, maybe a well-formed adult can do this, but certainly not a child. Wow. And so tell me about your, your struggle with allergies. I'm surprised to hear you say that. Well, I was the allergy kid. I was the allergy kid. I'm mostly pollen allergies and dander allergies. I, as a child, I, I would sneeze all morning long. And then in the afternoon, I'd be okay. And I, I, oh, my eyes would water. I was just a misery. And I think part of it was getting my blood sugar up. To some, you know, it takes a while for kids to get their blood sugar and, uh, stable. But anyway, when the spring comes, even today, I get the itchy eyes and things. Now, having raw milk has really helped that. And homeopathy can help. It can give some temporary relief. Uh, vitamin yeah. C can help. I've pretty much learned to control it, and it's not a problem anymore. And what about your eczema? Oh, that went away. That's that's all gone. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, did it go away as an adult when you changed your eating? Uh, it, it would come and go, but now you know we haven't talked about cod liver oil yet. So I'm a big I'm a big fan of cod liver oil. And what I found was when I get a bad case of allergy, I would just take more cod liver oil. I take it every day anyway. And that was really helpful for the the eczema. Yeah. And and my father was telling me and, you know, of his generation, they were, their parent, his mom made him take it every single day. Both my parents got cod liver oil and they had perfect eyesight and naturally ate straight teeth, both of them. My dad used to sit at the dinner table and he said, I just don't understand it. Your mom and I never needed braces. We don't need glasses. How come all you kids need braces and glasses? And one of the reasons is we weren't getting cod liver oil. They, that generation, got, before the Second World War, they got cod liver oil every day. And if they weren't getting it home, they got it in school or Sunday school. It was a really big public health program in the, in the United States. And, you know, that was before all the vaccinations, but they wanted to protect their kids from measles. Strep throat was another one that was um, kind of bad in those days. And how did they do it? They did it with cod liver oil. And at the same time, these kids were getting the vitamin A and D that they needed. Uh, They were drinking raw milk because pasteurization didn't come in until 1948. And that generation was probably the healthiest Western generation that we've ever had because they weren't onto a lot of processed foods yet. They were drinking raw milk. They ate liver because the doctors told them to eat liver once a week, and they got cod liver oil. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever been to France. I have a lot of friends in France. And they talk about the American soldiers coming in, the Liberation Army, and they all get tears in their eyes because they say these men were so handsome. They were so much taller than us, and they they were had beautiful teeth. They were just so handsome, and they were really nice. And you know, the Americans were just adored. And it was partly because they looked like Greek gods. They grew up on the farm, and they you know had really good food. Yeah. So one of the things I I wonder, and I just learned the difference myself, but you can explain it better. What's the difference between? I used to just take uh, you know what I thought was the best omega-3s. And, you know, I didn't realize until reading your book that cod liver is is very different and that's much more nutritious. Okay. So um, I talk a lot about omega-6 and omega-3 and we need a balance in our diet and not too much of either. In the Western diet, we get tons of omega-6 because that's what's in the vegetable oils. 
and hardly any omega-3. And you want to balance, just a little bit of both, okay? So what do Americans do? They, they listen to this and then they, start, they say, oh, okay, we're going to get rid of the vegetable oils and all the omega-6 and we're going to take a lot of omega-3. We're going to take all this fish oil. And I'm see, I've talked to and seen a lot of people who are getting too much omega-3. And worse than that, in the fish oils, the omega-3 is extremely rancid. So you take, if you take cod liver oil, you want to take just a little bit. I like the high vitamin cod liver oil because I can get a lot of A and D without getting too much omega-3. And that omega-3 has to be balanced by the kind of omega-6 that we get in animal fats. It's called arachidonic acid. It is absolutely critical for healthy gut and for the brain. The brain is 11% arachidonic acid. No other organ has so much arachidonic acid in it. That's from the animal fats. And that's why the animal fats are so important. Butter, lard, bacon fat if you want, tallow, meat fats. You're not going to get this from coconut oil or olive oil or fish oils. It has to be the animal fats. And they are really critical. They're critical for many reasons. But when you talk about the health of the brain, you know, they're just absolutely essential. And they're in egg yolks, by the way. Egg yolks have a lot of this omega-6. Egg yolks have both. They have omega-3 and the long-chain omega-6. And cod liver oil. That has the omega-3s in it. And it's best to get the fermented kind? Well, that's what I take. Now, a lot of these children with very sensitive guts might do better on a non-fermented. But again, I say, <laughs> use the shopping guide. And because there's only a few brands that we recommend, most cod liver oil is worthless. It's been heated very high temperatures. And then that destroys all the natural A and D and they add synthetic. Mm-hmm. And A is, is so important for the kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For the brain for digestion, protection against illness. Yeah. I found uh, upping my A, I just recently found out I was low in it and it changed my skin a lot. Vitamin A is really important for healthy skin. And a lot of these babies have skin problems. It's true. Yeah. And I think that's connected with the gut dysbiosis, lack of animal fats, that kind of thing. Yeah. It could also be over pasteurized and... Oh, yeah. BT, GMO food. <laughs> you know, another thing I really like want to warn against is there is a lot of vitamin A out there in the food supply, but it is the synthetic. And in all the vitamins, it's synthetic. And I just don't think that's a good idea. The natural vitamin A is a, a range of types of isomers, and the synthetic is just one. You know, all of these synthetic vitamins are made in China. There is absolutely no quality control. What's your favorite food for a uh, vitamin A? Well, um, cod liver oil. Okay. Cod liver oil. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, chicken liver is, I make chicken liver pate, which I think is delicious. Mm, it is. Egg yolks, pastured butter. Okay. Cream, cheese, you know, all those good foods. Is clarified butter going to have the same nutrients? It pretty much should do. Don't want to heat it too high when you're clarifying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, I think we've covered allergies and eczema. I was interested that was on here because a lot of these kids are covered in it. Now, there's a lot of topical things you can do for eczema. One is cod liver oil. You put it right on the eczema? Yes, yes. Wow. Emu oil is really good. Even there's a lot of creams that are tallow-based. They would be very good too because they'll all have arachidonic acid. They'll all have the fat-soluble vitamins. Okay. 
Well, that's that's great because a lot of kids these days are covered in it. Oh, I know. And it's just becoming uh, more and more common. And, and it's kind of like a bit of a mystery. And if you go to a conventional doctor, it's usually just steroids, steroid or a vitamin A cream. And that vitamin A cream will be a synthetic. So why not just put the natural cod liver oil on? Of course, the baby will smell like fish, but <laughs> do it at night. <laughs> and the Epsom salts bath and baking soda baths are good too. Yeah. Why do you like those for the eczema? Yeah, just very calming. You know, part of the problem is they're scratching all the time and that can be very calming. Yeah. I know it can also be good for, um, I used to put my son in those every night after he finished his, you know, a day of therapy. And my understanding was for detoxification and kind of. Magnesium, which is calming. Sulfur, which is in the Epsom salts. By the way, that's another thing in your egg yolks. It's so important. Sulfur? It's sulfur that carries the cholesterol around in the blood. So again, you're eating the egg yolks, got lots of cholesterol and you have the sulfur. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the things I would like to ask you about for kiddos who are tube fed, or even if they can't nurse, or for some reason or another, they need to be formula fed. Those are two topics I'd, I'd love to hear about. You have a raw milk infant formula that you recommend. And then Lindy told me you also have a bone broth infant formula. We have a, a liver and bone broth formula. So that raw milk formula, and most gals use um, cow's milk, but some use goat milk. I would say uh, just based on how long it's been out there, and I know that they, the company that sells the formula kits sells about 1000 a month. So 10 times 12. I mean, it's got to be... You know, it's got to be 1,500 or 2,000 babies that have been on this formula. And, you know, I'm not making any guarantees, but the feedback I get is that overall, the, this formula works beautifully. In fact, I got a letter from a mother of adopted twins who fed them the raw milk formula. And she said, these twins are amazing. They don't have any cavities. They're good in school. They're cheerful, they're growing fine. They were 10 years old. She said it just gave them the right start in life. The uh, liver formula, I've had a lot of people tell me, oh, it's too much vitamin A in that formula. And we only put it in there because Mary Ennig told me there used to be a liver baby formula made by Gerber that you could get. Anyway, um, I was at a conference and this man came down next to, sat down next to me and he showed me this picture of this beautiful little girl. She was about three years old, beautiful rosy cheeks. Oh, she was just gorgeous. So this is my granddaughter and she was dying. We tried everything. The mother wasn't nursing for whatever reason, I don't know. And they tried formula, they tried my raw milk formula and every time the baby would just projectile vomit. So on day 10, this baby had had nothing to eat baby was dying. He said, well, he said, we have nothing to lose. So they made the liver formula they put in the bottle and they gave it to this baby and she drank the whole bottle and just went to sleep. She grew up with a liver formula. She said that, he said that formula saved her life. And when they had their second child, they just didn't hesitate. They put her on the formula too. And that child did beautifully. So these can be life-saving, these formulas. And all you have to do is read the ingredients on the label of, you know, commercial formula, you almost have to ask, what are they thinking? First and foremost, the fats are not animal fats, they're vegetable oils. Now, my husband and I have a farm and we were in a feed store one day, actually it was a tractor store, but they had animal feed there and there was a bag of milk replacement for calves. The third ingredient, I guess it was the fourth ingredient in that milk replacer was animal fat. 
So they know that growing mammals need animal fat, but do they put it in the uh, formula for growing human mammals? No. And then the it, the carbohydrate should be lactose, but it's rare to find that in the formula. You know, the formula should be made with gently freeze-dried raw whole milk. That's You actually could do a powdered formula. It wouldn't be too bad, but it would be so expensive. And that's the problem. It's so expensive to imitate mother's milk. And by the way, formula is expensive anyway, even the cheapest formulas. And we've done a cost comparison. It costs just the same to give babies our raw milk formula, powdered formula from the grocery store. It costs the same. Yeah. Well, I tried it one time with one of my last child, Mm -hmm. five children, and always had no problem with nursing. But with my last one, I couldn't very well. And so Wendy said, try this formula. And so I made it for him. And he was also very small because I think because he wasn't getting enough milk, which is part of the reason I decided I would try to give him something else. And he, and for a little while, he was losing weight. And then he went on this and he just was bright and he gained weight and he was like perfectly healthy and yeah, plumped him right up. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's great to talk to Lindy because she's had so much experience now. I mean, how many years of experience? 20 years or more. And I'm sure she's seen a lot of babies who've done well on the formula. Yeah. I was so grateful for the opportunity to go to a medical doctor's office that promoted all these slow living, traditional cooking, healthy way of living. It's very important. And unfortunately, most people in this country aren't getting that kind of advice. You know, it's sort of, I don't want to point fingers, but I I want to say their fault. Why don't we say our fault, okay? Because we're a society that wants a quick fix. We've become accustomed to the quick fixes in everything, in the cars and the computers, whatever. You just fix it, right? But the human body is very different. And the poor health is a sign that something needs changing. And you can't do that with a pill. You need to change or the family needs to change or whatever. And that's a message that most people don't want to hear. They want quick absolution, you know? And Mm -hmm. and that's a mindset that's going to have to gradually change. Hopefully soon. People will wake up soon. So this um, formula, for we've got the bone broth and we've got the raw milk formula. Are those complete foods for a brain injured child who maybe is also tube fed? Yeah. I know of people who have used it for tube feeding. I don't know. I don't have any numbers on the long-term outcomes, but you could use it for tube feeding. You can use raw milk for tube feeding, just raw milk. And soups and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I want to hear about your book that you have coming out here. I think we've touched on all of the the questions on the brain health here. And I want to hear a little bit about your book before um, we end. The Contagion Myth. Uh, it will be out next week, the 27th of September. And it's got a really radical message, which is that what they're calling viruses are actually exosomes. And exosomes are produced by the cell in response to an assault, to a poison. And there actually are pictures of these exosomes surrounding and swallowing up uh, little particles of poison and taking them out of the cell. So viruses are not attacking us or whatever. They are what the body produces in response to some kind of emergency. And they're little packets of DNA and these packets of DNA go around in the bloodstream and they say, hey, heart cell or whatever, 
something's coming, you need to be ready for it. So they help us adjust. And in particular, they help us adjust to what I'm calling electrosmog, which is all of the Wi-Fi pollution. And our argument is, well, first of all, the government, if you dig deep enough, the government will tell you they don't have a coronavirus. They've never isolated one. They've never purified one. They're just using surrogate tests to say, oh, this must be the virus. They do not have a coronavirus. So it can't be that that's making us sick. And what is causing this disease, and we do not minimize this. We're not saying, oh, this is just a bad version of the flu. It's quite serious. The symptoms are things like widespread blood clotting, a fizzy electric feeling in the body, and complete degeneration of the lungs. And we are arguing that this is caused by electromagnetic radiation, particularly the 5G, which is basically microwave. It's the same thing that's in your microwave oven. And it's being installed in the big cities and some buildings, some schools. And the, the illness started in Wuhan, China, where they rolled out uh, 10,000 base stations within the matter of a couple of weeks, more than were anywhere else in the world. A lot of people got really sick. And then it uh, came in Northern Europe. Uh, the country with the most cases of coronavirus is San Marino, a little country in Italy. And they've had the most cases per population because they've been exposed to it the longest. And it is exacerbated by air pollution, particularly the pollution from biodiesel engines. And that's what you find in northern Italy, parts of France, uh, parts of Germany. And that's where you had and Spain also. So lots of cases there. And then it came to New York. And New York was the first city where we rolled out 5G. And now it's kind of spread everywhere. Uh, you do have to be a little bit careful because a lot of the cases that they are saying this is they have you know coronavirus, it's just a positive test, and these tests are completely meaningless. They're not they can't be used for diagnosis, but they'll say, oh, five of these students tested positive, so we have an outcome uh, outbreak. That's ridiculous. I, I would tell people never get that test. It's a very dangerous test. They're taking a swab and putting all the way back next to the membrane that separates your sinus cavity from your brain and twisting it around. It's a very dangerous test, and the results are meaningless, completely meaningless. They need to diagnose this disease based on symptoms. But anyway, we're arguing there's no virus. It's not contagious. All the masking and social distancing and closing of businesses and putting millions of people into poverty, which is what's happened, has been futile. And it's, it's not necessary and it doesn't do any good. Yeah, it's scary. And they declare, see what's happened is the governors or even mayors say, we have a health emergency and the law upholds emergency measures in a health emergency. So that, that gives them the right, so-called, I don't think they actually have it, but um, to impose all these... Uh, measures on people. Extreme. Very extreme. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's divided the nation. You know, there's people like me who only wear a mask if I'm absolutely forced to. And other people who, if they see you without a mask, they accuse you of endangering everybody. Yeah. So there's a lot of shaming going on and um, fear. And, you know, we should never make any action out of fear. If, If someone's trying to make you afraid of a virus or bacteria or raw, or raw milk or cholesterol or whatever it is, a little red light needs to go on. A little red light needs to go on and you need to look further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so for the people who are sick, 
from whatever they're sick from, they're now sick. The best things that they can do for their health are to boost their immune system. Well, first of all, I would try to clean up your house, especially your sleeping area as much as possible. Try not to have Wi-Fi in your house here. I'm sitting at my computer. It's completely wired and I have all the Bluetooth and all that stuff turned off. So I can take a RF meter right up to my computer and it stays green. That's what you want. You want a safe computer. You don't want to use your cell phone very much. I only use mine in emergencies. I use a, a landline. <laughs> try, to, try to do that in your house. And if you can't do that, at least turn your Wi-Fi off at night so that you and your children are not sleeping in this electrosmog. And then... Yeah. Our diet, the animal fats, the bone broth, the, the raw milk, all of these things are very protective, whatever the situation, but certainly a situation where you're being zapped, <laughs> zapped by millimeter waves. So do you actually, we recently had a podcast episode about cleaning up your sleep area and there's an, a very neat solution that you could do if you do still have Wi-Fi in your house and modern features in your home, you could just get something called a sleep switch, or you could make one yourself and, and shut it all off at night. I don't know if you can shut your Wi-Fi off that way. You really have to go turn it off, but you can turn off all the electricity in your room. And, and we do that. There's nothing going through our wires, no alarm clock by the bedside. You don't want anything right by your head while you're sleeping. So the alarm clock one is really easy to do. Just get a little um, battery operated alarm clock. Not one that has a wire on it that's right by your head. Yeah, baby monitors are horrible. Oh, the baby monitor is the worst. And cars are very bad now. Today, most cars have a lot of... Bluetooth technology. Yeah, and also things that are looking for, you know, other cars and stuff. Oh, sensors, tons sensors, of Sensors, that's the everywhere. word I'm using. And they're always emitting. And so getting in your car is sort of like getting in your microwave oven, you know, the the meter, if you have a radio frequency meter, it just goes haywire in your car. I think there'll be a real good market for manufacturers to make cars for electrosensitive people. I'd be the first to buy one that didn't have all these sensors. Maybe Tesla will do it. Oh, oh the electric cars are the worst. Oh, really? They're absolutely. The, oh, yes. They're, well, you can't win, it sounds like, with the cars no. currently. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of things that are promoted as good for the environment or whatever Again, you, you always have to have your LIDAR working. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you drive? Well, unfortunately, I just drive a General Motors. Keep it old school. Yeah, No, no, but it's a modern car. I ran it. So I, I try to stay out of the car as much as I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's all really good. I think that we've covered the basics, I hope, here. and Well, again, I, I think one more to go back to how, where we started about the blood sugar. So you want to make sure that your child's blood sugar is stable all day long. That means three good meals with protein and fat at every meal. And of course, avoiding all the sugar, uh, high sugar foods and avoiding too much carb. Some is fine, but and then try not to be giving them candy and sweets and stuff between meals. So the dessert should come after a good meal with the protein and fat and then the kind of a low sugar dessert. That's where your custard comes in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you have a lot of recommendations for desserts, cookies and cakes. You know, I don't think we should give a child a diet that's too extreme. Like I'm not going to give my kids any sugar, you know, no desserts. They'll rebel, you know, they're going to be old enough to rebel. So the diet has to be quite inclusive. 
and varied and delicious. Plenty of salt, plenty of butter on everything, butter or ghee. Where did you learn to cook, Sally? You know, it's funny. Um, I didn't realize this at the time, but my parents were probably the original foodies. They loved to travel. Uh, They traveled to Europe a lot. And when they came back, my mother always tried to cook what they'd had. And she was a very good cook. So that was the example I had. I mean, we were eating prosciutto and cassoulet and, you know, all these things, filet of sole, miniere, and uh, when I was a little girl. So we had that at the table. Now, I didn't get raw milk. I didn't get cod liver oil. I never ate liver till I was a teenager, but I was getting butter, lots of butter, and we had whole milk. I was very fortunate in that respect. And then I was, I guess, like my parents who both love to cook, I guess they passed that on to me. Yeah, I guess so. I guess your parents did did right by you and taught you a lot of things. It's impressive that you still tried liver when you were a teenager. Well, I always tell this story. So I was going to school in France, and we think of France as the land of wonderful food. But if you've ever been to an institution like this was a college in France, the food there was so incredibly horrible that I couldn't eat it. And I'd go down to the cafe, and one day they were serving something called terrine, and I didn't know what terrine was. I'd never heard of it. Well, terrine was like a slice of real fatty meatloaf with liver in it. And it was delicious. And I, I must have eaten so much liver. And I think my body needed it because I had never had it. And uh, so that's when I got onto the, the liver. And I never stopped after, after that. I love a good pate. Yes. Yeah. I always say the Europeans, they know how to make awful taste good. Yes. So in Germany, you can get a liver sausage. And um England, you can get uh, blood sausage, and they're all delicious. And we just don't have those things here. We need to bring them, bring them back. Do you ever eat out, ever? When we lived in town, uh, we did because there were a lot of great restaurants. There was a restaurant where I could get sweetbreads within walking distance, a restaurant that sold grasshopper tacos and things like that. Well, we've moved out to the country now, and there, is, there are just no restaurants around here. So we don't go out very often. Maybe for seafood, we go out. You know, talking about liver, one of the traditional foods in this part of the world is scrapple. And scrapple is made from the scraps of butchering the pig. So it has all little bits of organ meats and it's made in a broth and they add some wheat, uh, which might be hard for some, some people. And it comes as this little block and you slice it really thin and you fry it in lard for breakfast. And it's delicious. And a lot of people around here eat scrapple. They don't think of it as a health food or they don't know, even know it has liver in it. They just know it's called scrapple. I remember, uh, had lots of talks with my hairdresser about this. She said, oh, I love scrapple. We have it all the time. And it's a wonderful food. And they have it, they're eating this almost every day. And you see people in this part of the world that really do look quite healthy. They're eating seafood, lots of seafood and scrapple. And they're getting nutrient-dense foods. What part of the country are you in? We're in Southern Maryland. Oh, okay. Kind of very rural down here, very rural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how big is your farm? Is it a- uh, we're on 95 acres and we do raw cheese. We, do, we sell raw milk as pet milk and pork, including the scrapple and beef, eggs, and uh, chicken. Hmm. I bet you have um, some lucky neighbors who shop. Do, they, do you sell it? Well, I, it's a really kind of an understatement to say there's not much of a food culture down here. <laughs> we're, trying, we're trying to build one, but yeah, we have some very grateful customers. Yeah, yeah. Have you in the, their backyard? I just started ordering some meat from um, a farmer in, in Iowa, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, them. nice, nice. Yeah. yeah. We should all have a farmer. And, you know, we one of the things we saw in this COVID thing was how fragile our food system is. And we had got a lot of new customers because they really couldn't get meat at the grocery store for a few weeks. But we had meat, see. So we need to, everybody needs to support a farm, a real farm that's doing pasture-based agriculture. And not just in the times of crisis, but all the time. They need to stay in business so they're there when you really need them. And you and your shopping guide in the Weston A. Price shopping guide, do you guys have a guide for how to find your local farmers, don't you? And, and raw milk? Or is that on another website? There are a lot of uh, phone numbers and things in here, but for that, I would go uh, contact your local chapter and you can do that online or it's in the back of our journal. And they, all the local chapters keep a food list of what's available locally and they'll help you find all these things. Wonderful. I'll link to that as well. It's a like a magazine, like a book almost. It's a, Yes, it's a journal. Yeah. And it comes out quarterly? Yeah, and that's for members. Uh, We're just putting our fall journal to bed, and that will be out soon. Pretty radical journal. Pretty radical. The front part of the journal is more of the scientific stuff, and the back part of the journal is practical cooking, what's happening in the politics of food. Uh, We always have an article on raw milk, book reviews, uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. When did you start the foundation? So we started it in 1999. And uh, Tom Cowan is the vice president, is my co-author. He um, was one of the founding board members. So we've been going ever since. Yeah, it's impressive what you've been able to do, changing the culture in in so many ways for so many people. We hope so. You are. You really are. (laughs) I mean, each person that I've shared, well, Lindy shared with me, and then I share with other people. And it's just like the way this trickle affected. Have you heard about, you know, anything they're struggling with? What do I feed my baby? Or how do you eat eat well? What would, what would Dr. Yeah, and it's all, it's all on our website. We really want to make all this information free for people. But at the same time, we need the support of the people who, you know, can afford to be members and afford to support us financially. I understand. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time, Sally. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to be on. And, you know, if you have any more questions, you can email me and I'm happy to answer them. Thank you. I hope that you all enjoyed my conversation with Sally today. I am so lucky that we were able to get connected and had the opportunity to have Sally on the Brain Possible podcast today. I hope that you learned something new and that maybe you can try something new in your kitchen or when you shop for groceries with your family. I can tell you that my very first shift in in the way that I fed my family when my little guy had a brain injury and, and I was just not sure what to do, I reached for her book. And I have been cooking bone broth in my slow, long and slow bone broth or even meat stock as used in the GAPS diet for years now. And feeding my kids sauerkraut and nutrient-dense foods as recommended in nourishing traditions. And I've never looked back. I can always do better. I can't say that I cook everything in her book, but I take all this one step at a time and I'm always layering in something new to support myself and my family to thrive. So I hope that you find something that you can use as well. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Be well.